We're loose. We're limber. I'm chasing clout. I'm getting canceled. That's right. We're doing all that. That's how it goes around here. It, it's really like a giant wheel. It's like a game show wheel. And you just have to pick one. You roll every week. And every week you're either getting clout, getting canceled, or getting paid. In this case, $1,200 from the government. Money, 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 money. Uh, I know what I'm spending my money on. I'm spending it on Animal Crossing. And Hell yes. You might say, well, Brandon, Animal Crossing is only $60. What are you going to do with the rest of it? I'm going to buy multiple copies of Animal Crossing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's that's how you play the stock market well. And by the Mm. way, that's STLK for those of you who aren't familiar with Animal Crossing lingo. I see. There's a whole market of buying and selling turnips. And all of my friends who are playing Animal Crossing can only talk about this one subject. Aren't a bunch of like crypto nerds trying to game the market and it's like not actually gameable because there's no debt? Hi, I'm John. (laughs) Uh, uh, Who is is on the line? I thought we were having like one of our our chilled out episodes and we were spending our money and now there's some other person here. Can Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Did you spend any of your Trump money on being a guest on this show? Because if so... No! um, No? No! You you mean you don't have to pay... I mean, mean, yes, you do have to pay. And it's very expensive to be a guest on this show. And I'm glad that you were able to step up to the plate, make that, I don't even call it spending money. I call it an investment. You know, you've got stocks, you've got stalks, like an Animal Crossing. Um, You've got stonks, which I know Kennedy loves, the S-T-O-N-Ks. And um, (laughs) yeah, you've also got the clout stocks, um, which are S-T-A- W-K-S. It's like stop, clout, and gawking at the same time. And you're going to get a lot of it, buddy. You've spent your cash in the right place. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, so... Uh, what are you, Rachel, what are you spending your Trump bucks on? You know, honestly, probably I'm going to just get something like really frivolous. But I haven't decided yet like what frivolous thing I'm going to do. Or like I'll get my kid like a swing set or something. I've been thinking about getting a swing set for a while, especially now that we can't leave the house. Spend it on jet skis. Trust me, I'm an expert on these things. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could like theoretically afford to do another like pinup photo shoot for twelve hundred bucks too. So maybe I'll do that. You haven't even put out the last one. I'll invest it in additional butt pics. Yeah, I'm titrating. I'm putting in- them out <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Invest in butt pics. Being, Kennedy, what are you going to It's called being a patron of the arts. That's correct. <laughs> Kennedy, when Kennedy invests in butt pics, it's from a totally different direction. That's right. <laughs> Typically, people pay me for the butt pics, but... Right. Kennedy, what are you spending your money on? You know, I, I hate to say it, but I'm actually also thinking about buying Animal Crossing. <laughs> You know, one caveat to buying a bazillion copies of Animal Crossing is you only get one island per console. So, like, if you want to do the, like, gaming the system thing, you're going to have to buy, like, a bunch of Switches as well. I already own a bunch of Switches, and they've made me a lot of friends. Um, (laughs) It's just that with the quarantine, they can't really come over and get, you know, the discipline that they need. uh, Wow. Yeah, it's, it's just been rough on everybody. We're talking uh, about sex again. Are we? No, we're talking about Animal Crossing. What are you talking? What? No. Brandon wants to fuck the animals. John, <laughs> listen, we're not going back to the red clay days. I'm imagining you yeah. as the king of Bugs Bunny. Lord forgive me. <laughs> I'm going back to the old me. John. Hi, John. What are you spending your money on? 
I don't know yet because my accountant has yet to tell me. You've got an accountant. You don't deserve to have this $1,200. Oh, I know, which is why I am going to probably donate all my money back into like local mutual aid groups or like top up my DSA dues. Oh, hell yeah. That's a good idea. You you give it away. And then when they come to reappropriate it, you can just brush your hands off and be like, hey, already gone. No, I'm going to make a button asking me about my class tradership. (laughs) I'm into it. Betray the rich. I kept my receipts. On that relatively wholesome note, hi everybody, you're listening to Not Safe for Wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. I'm Rachel Khan. And we have a guest here today. John, introduce yourself, please, to the audience. Hello, um, invisible podcast audience. Uh, I am John Levitt, a artist, author, and activist, and that still sounds pretentious no matter how many times I say it, but it's true. can make you sound more pretentious by lines in various outlets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It may sound a little pretentious, but come on. That's the job title we all want. That's the job title yeah. we all want. My lines are yeah, very You know, powerful. like, I would love it if I could say this was my paid job instead of a thing that I do when people ask me my what I do. My work doesn't pay at all. Oh. <laughs> then I guess I can look forward to continuing exactly being where I am. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, like, we're podcasters. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like pods are a step below, like, published like articles in major media or whatever like we're just sort of over here yelling about how brandon wants to have sex with cartoon animals and occasionally talking to people who are way more competent than we are so but that's no (laughs) different than the work i did at vice so (laughs) (laughs) oh that hit me right in the right in the feels let them know uh we we've got a lot to talk about just today, uh, we're going to talk about one of the underreported and underrepresented aspects of this viral crisis. You know, we we don't want to be one of these shows that just says like COVID today. Uh, let's just kind of have like a different angle on subjects. And food security is one of those things. And you've written and reported a lot about that subject. Before we do that, though, what was the weirdest thing that happened to you at Vice? Because I think people would be fascinated by that. I was just a freelancer. No, the weirdest thing that didn't happen to me directly, but what happened to everyone I know who worked there is that apparently they were they had like a really hostile accounting department. Whoa. Yeah, they would people would just straight up not get paid. Ooh. What the fuck? Yeah. How does that happen? I mean, other than capitalism, which is how all of the bad things happen. It, historically, it's not been a very well-run media empire, and that's saying something considering the media empires that exist. You know, like for the longest time, they had that 22-22-22 rule, unspoken, that hire 22-year-olds, make them work 22 hours a day, and pay them $22,000 a year. Wow, these sound like top management tactics. We need to bring some 22-year-olds into the pod empire. See, that was the problem. They ran out of twenty of naive 22-year-olds, and they just ended up with a bunch of like grizzled Writers Guild of America reporters. <laughs> tried to unionize their newsroom and then they like immediately fired everyone uh that's gonna be a problem all the 22 year olds are radicalized now they come in the door singing solidarity forever you're like oh can't exploit these kids they're meaner than we are i mean let me tell you i hope to god for the day the dictatorship of the teen cuts my head off (laughs) we've got some bloodthirsty teenagers in our podcast reticule retinue uh and yeah they've they've had enough of this shit i mean they don't know any alternative to how bad things are. Uh, they're all like in, from the post 9-11 world. And I don't know, if, I think it's very underreported because those people don't have jobs in the media and can't share their experiences. Just how formative uh, American culture of the last 20 years, which has just been ruthless, exploitative, 
openly corrupt um, has just had on people's mindsets, uh, obviously with millennials, but I think Gen Z even more. Well, yeah, because millennials are like the ones we figured it out for ourselves. And for Gen Z, it's just always been there, I think. Yeah, we were raised in a world that at least had like a veneer of, you know, respectability onto it. And uh, Gen Z just was born into a world that was full beast mode out of the gate. So, (laughs) yeah. So uh, I think this episode will be of special interest to those exploited vice writers because they're unemployed, just like so many other Americans. On our website, Twitter, there's a little graph of the unemployment graph that is set to the uh, opening boot up logo of the Nintendo GameCube. So it just goes through history like, and then it just shows like this quarter's unemployment and it is off the charts. Oh yeah, I think it was uh, Riley from Trash Future who said like these unemployment numbers make all other numbers trivia. Correct, and they do. And I think they're underreported because the people in the media that are reporting these things have jobs. So there's lots of reporting about like everyone's on Zoom now. And like, no, the average person is not on Zoom. The average person is in a state of extreme panic. (laughs) At home, exhausted, unable to leave. They're fighting with their landlord every day because they couldn't pay rent last month. And we're coming up on water bills like in a few days. And yet, at the same time, I am seeing a lot of people really moving towards mutual aid here. I am seeing a lot of people respond to this by, you know, saying and doing things that are much more gentle and constructive than you might expect for how dire everybody's straits are. Um, Like, I'm thinking even locally here in, you know, the metro Atlanta area, like, as soon as this hit and it started to look like there's going to be you know disruptions in the food supply chain people immediately started growing food and forming like this now like 250 person food co-op um so i I think in spite of how dire things are and in spite of the media's sort of aggressive refusal to acknowledge how dire things actually are for people we are still seeing some really hopeful things coming out of this Yeah, definitely. And, you know, part of the reason mutual aid programs are picking up the speed in which they are is not only is the natural human compassion thing, passionate thing to do, but also our entire like state and federal system is um, doesn't exist anymore. Been completely gutted, yeah. Yeah, like we had the crisis of the third century in about two months. So it's like, there's nothing else you can do except whatever you can, you know, either to help your neighbors or your comrades or um, affiliate workers in, in other industries. I mean, what else can you do if you're working now still? You're probably like facing down the barrel of dying for $11 an hour, or you're on strike because you don't want to die for $11 an hour, or you're unemployed, like I believe what is it, like one in eight Americans now we are in it's real great depression hours i don't it's such a shame that these kind of things don't hit the news with the kind of urgency that they deserve because again the people reporting have jobs well and it's so much higher for millennials and people under the age of 35 like those unemployment numbers are for everybody but like if you start talking about people who are like under the age of 40 i think it's something like 52 percent of people under the age of 45 have either been let go or on reduced hours or can't find a job I'm glad you mentioned reduced hours because I really wanted to get in the point that like underemployment is also this whole thing that's not, you don't see that in these numbers, but there are a lot of people that I know that I've talked to that every week for the last few weeks, it's like, well, I guess I'm getting three less hours this week. I'm getting five less hours this week. And now they're at the point where they're at like one shift and they still quote unquote have a job, but. Or, uh, the, uh, or the line that, you know, unemployment's so low, some people have two or three jobs. 
Yeah, uh, people have to fight for hours. And that's been something that's existed in the wage economy for since 08, really. I don't feel like we've ever recovered from that. People have never gone back to like having full-time work. Uh, if you're a retail worker, your hours probably top out at around 35 and you're getting, you're calling your job like every other day, who's there, who's not going to show up? Can I get some hours? And if they don't have the hours for you, your boss is mad at you. You're not putting out whatever it is. And your hours just get slashed to nothing. And they just keep you there for like 10 hours a week until you find something else or quit. And then they blame that shit on you. And of course, you're not eligible for anything in that situation. So that's the reserve army of labor, people who will literally work to do anything. Yeah. I've told Brandon this story before, but I was literally had my hours and pay reduced by a boss once that had just bought a vintage BMW to fix up like the week before. That is so fucking grotesque. It's the the fact that he wouldn't think that I would have been upset, you know, that these people don't even think enough to realize that when they're doing this right in front of their employees, we see that shit and we're not happy about it. Well, because you aren't really just employees, you're subhuman worker drones. Or a thing that makes him money, like real shit. How nothing is symbolic anymore. Like everything is just completely literal. Yeah. I wish that this kind of attitude was something that was just limited to people who were in the employing class because politics would be a lot easier. And I think we talk in terms of like it's the 99% versus the 1%. But of course, it's actually not. Um, the thing that makes politics hard is that maybe it should be that way. But so many people who are in a depressed economic condition base their entire moral philosophy on kicking people who are doing just as badly as they are. I think of the SNAP program and food stamps as like one of those issues, since we're talking about food. One of the reasons that it is this bad to begin with and that we're not in a position to survive a crisis is because there's been 30 or 40 years of steady action to dehumanize people who are on programs like SNAP, mostly because we don't even understand what that person is or what that person's needs are. We have a, a image in our heads of what the average SNAP recipient is, and that has nothing in common with what the actual reality is. And it's one of the... Uh best arguments and i'm so glad you brought up snap because snap is frequently you know derided in conservative circles and even in, in some liberal circles especially in the 90s but it actually is one of the most frictionless federal welfare programs that we have and something in which all of its problems in so much that they exist in the snap system could be solved by expanding it or even making it universal because you would remove any incentive for fraud for example and uh, you have things that sit on you know Food rots. It needs to be sold. But uh, the big thing about universalism is that it removes the welfare recipient as someone who is other. So, John, we kind of brought you on the show today, and I'm sure you might want to be modest about this, but I won't let you because you're somewhat of an expert on food justice and mutual aid and topics like that. And so we're kind of hoping that we can dig deep into not just SNAP, but also like the broader issue of how do we secure food for our communities, especially in communities that right now are underserviced in every way. They don't have the benefits that they need in terms of like a SNAP program or something like that to keep families afloat. And in many cases, they may, they may live in a food desert. They don't even have a place to go to get real food that's convenient or nearby or affordable. So we're very excited to kind of get into that. And I'd really like to just ask you, first of all, like about um, the program in New York, that is going on right now during coronavirus, because I think this is very interesting. In New York, they've managed to roll out this impossible, you, Brandon, you love to say this kind of shit all the time, like, this is one of those things that's not supposed to be possible, right? 
what they're doing in New York right now. That's quote unquote, we can't do this. We cannot do this. And and yet it's happening. And so, John, would you just like to kind of detail what's going on with the New York program for the audience and, and sort of get into how you feel about that? It's a food czar. Of course. And I'm not an expert. I just read a lot of experts and I sound really important. <laughs> but you know what? Close enough. Yeah, I play one on the podcast. So what New York is doing is it's Meals for Free program because um, obviously children aren't going to school. And one of the big reasons uh, our mayor de Blasio cited in not closing the schools as quickly as he did is because he would always say, look, for a very large percentage of our students, this may be the only hot meal they get a day, which is served as school lunch. And something like one in 11, I believe, students in the New York uh, City school system are homeless or unhoused. So like that really, you know, the schools are a really important place for that. When it became clear to everyone that the schools needed to be closed in terms of public health, there's still all that food infrastructure in the schools because, you know, there has to be every uh, school in every district and they have to serve at least two meals a day. So they started this meals program, which is actually incredibly exciting, where people can pick up up to three pre-made meals a day, uh, not to be eaten there, but to be eaten elsewhere, you know, social distance. Uh, they can request vegetarian options and gluten-free options and kosher options. But the big thing is it's open for everybody and there's no means testing. You don't have to show an ID. You don't have to prove that you make under a certain amount of money. You don't have to prove that you have a kid in the school system. It's just, this is a public health issue. If people do not have access to food, they are going to get sicker faster and we'll have more deaths on our hands. Or, you know, it's just one less thing people have to worry about. And it, it's just been expanded today, Wednesday, uh, the 15th. Uh, since March 16th, they've already served 4.5 million meals to New Yorkers, including 300,000 meals to seniors, which people hear school and school lunches and they immediately think kids. But like, it's also the fact that we have a lot of food insecure seniors, especially in my area, where I've been seeing lines lining up at the senior centers for these food programs. So they expect to serve 10 million meals. They want to increase that to 15 million and they will be buying 18 million shelf stable meals which means you know meals ready to eat in military parlance and this is something that we as socialists or as leftists or as communists or as anarchists can look to as a program set up by a municipality real murray bookchin hours that serves the needs of its people and can be retained after this emergency, assuming there is an after. And this is something like SNAP that it will only get better if we expand it, such as not only making just the assumption that everyone gets at least one hot meal a day for free, regardless of their immigration status or their income or their need, but we could also expand it to well, we have a lot of produce partners in our green market system. In our green market system, they all have to be producer-owned in order to participate in it. That's a lot of produce that goes to waste at the end of the day. If we could incorporate that into a city system, we could essentially use it to revitalize the region's small and medium-hold farms, which would make us a little less dependent on shelf-stable meals and also less dependent on large agribusiness, while in at the same time keeping money within the region. Because most of our green market producer farms are from about 100 miles away, so you're also talking about reducing transit time, you're talking about reducing carbon by having carbon-intensive planting practices, and I don't know, sky's the limit. Barcelona is doing something very similar to this with food halls, and I think municipally run food halls, and I think that's something we could work towards, and this could be the, the little dirt in the oyster that becomes the pearl of a municipal universal food policy. I want to talk a little bit about how that 
works and kind of some of the balancing act that has to be done to make that like an effective policy. Um, I want to come back to it, though. I, I want to talk a little bit about how how we sell that policy once people have it. Do you perceive, do you think that in the future people will turn on this program once the crisis is over? Or do you think that people will welcome that as a change? Is it something that's going to be visible to people, invisible? Um, just what kind of impact do you think and I think that we can talk a little bit more about how these emergency policies will last after, but just how do you think people will treat these policies after the emergency passes and what opportunity is there for us? I think a lot of it comes in how it's rolled out and how we as activists present it and insist it. For example, the more people use it, the better it'll be. Universal programs, once implemented, are very difficult to get rid of. Look at Medicaid, look at Social Security. It takes decades to whittle those away. So you have to kind of start big by getting everyone to buy in. And you just argue with the assumption, this is something the city can provide. It did provide once. Why not provide it again and keep it going and make it bigger? And I would I always make the argument this is a public health issue. If you can maintain or at least encourage healthy meals, they just did something where they replace the protein in two portions of school lunches with plant-based protein. That alone is going to save the city a couple million tons in carbon emissions, but also health problems. And if hopefully the New York Healthcare Act passes and suddenly the entire state is on the buck for healthcare in New York, then we can say, well, we will mandate um, vegetarian options. And you can just get them for free. What is the New York Healthcare Act? The New York Healthcare Act is New York's single payer. Uh, there's a similar program being pushed in California. The idea being that smaller states like Vermont that attempted it, their insurance pool is just too small to do it. You need one of the big four states. And that could serve as a testing lab. California, Texas, Illinois, and New York. California, Texas, Illinois, New York, yeah. And these can be used as lab centers, sort of testing grounds for uh, nationwide Medicare for all. What's the political situation around that? Because I know that they tried to pass a Medicare for all type system in California and Democrats smothered it out in committee and it didn't go anywhere. And I also know New York has an infamously, what's a polite word to use here? Uh, like corrupt, like an infamously corrupt legislature. I think it's, like it's historically corrupt. It's one of our um, many proud traditions and I don't like it being slandered that way. <laughs> okay. It's a landmark. Yeah. There's, there's plaques up. In honor of corruption. On this day, in this place, this mayor really screwed everybody. Us tweets said it cost 80,000 gallons of paint to paint the walls. Yeah. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm from Georgia where we put votes directly in the shredder. So I like to think of us as like corruption buddies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like a buddy uh, comedy with the brutal repression of, of people. It's a terrible ABC sitcom. It's like bad cop, worse cop, you know? Exactly. Georgia being the worst cop in this case, of course. Well, I throw votes away, but I make sure no one can ever get elected. But uh, New York, we have a, an absolutely terrible governor. Do not let the media tell you different. He is slime, uh, essentially a Republican. And for the longest time, he prevented any progressive legislation from coming in through the New York Senate. Because our Senate and our Assembly is actually quite further to the left, even of California's, I think, because California's is weirdly right, right wing. I think it's because there are a lot of property owners and there's actually not a whole lot of property owners in New York. So he created something called the Independent Democratic Caucus, which were a bunch of Democrats who caucused with the Republicans to make sure that no progressive legislation like single payer ever came to a vote. And about a couple of years ago, we destroyed that caucus and primaried almost all of their members. 
So suddenly he had to come up with a new excuse for not doing it. And it's basically just been like legislative trickery. He's like moved around dates or like tried to claim emergency powers. And it's just like, it's very clear this is what the state wants. We have overwhelming support for this. And also things like our rent control laws, which we just passed. But on the other hand, it also feels like we also had a really big bail reform and the governor just erased that from existence in the budget. Nearly one month ago to the day, uh, Bakari Sellers uh, tweeted on his Twitter feed, quote, y'all almost had Cynthia Nixon. This is why experience matters. Uh, It's been a pretty interesting month in the history of New York. So can you talk a little bit about the experience that New Yorkers have had uh, over the last 30 days and how valuable Governor Cuomo's experience has been for them? Well, I I definitely know people, uh, usually older, usually a little wealthier, who think he's doing a pretty good job because they just want an authoritarian voice being very soothing at certain times of the day. And like, I get it. I know what a kink is, but... Oh, no. He's like your daddy, Oh, Oh, God. Oh, have you heard like some of the liberal media talking about him that I way? Have. Like it's literally. Crazy. It's upsetting. I've heard liberal family members talking about him in a way that it's it's like when everyone was hot for Justin Trudeau a few years ago. Before the whole racism right. something or another that I don't know. Something happened, I think. It's even worse because Cuomo's just like a goblin-faced dolphin who would be unfit for running an used auto dealership, but he happened to come out of the right body, so. He, he definitely looks like a Spider-Man villain or something along those lines. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I don't know why our governor is the Green Goblin, but here we are. Oh, no. Like he'd be squatted up with Norman Osborn. No lies. I could see it, yeah. Maybe he actually really is the Green Goblin, and that's just like a thing that he's going to drop later for re-election. Out, am I? <laughs> he's just... Well, theoretically, he can't get re-elected again, but everyone expects him to cheat somehow said that about it, that's a proud new york tradition yeah put the record straight we did not almost have cynthia nixon she did not get a large share of the vote because nobody in upstate knew who she was and everyone in like the big cemented although except in albany she did very well in albany because albany really hates cuomo because he has basically stolen 22 million dollars from that city how do you steal $22 billion from albany you're going to create an economic redevelopment program and it goes to all your friends instead well, that's fun. Well, there you that's go. Fun that that does do sound it. like a solidly Georgia move, actually. No, it's it like, really it's the same grift as like a hundred years ago. It's just now they have like slightly less silly suits. Only slightly. And occasionally possibly visible nipple piercings through their, you know, sports tees or whatever. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh, I was wondering if you were going to go there, Rachel, and I knew it would be you if anyone. Of course <laughs> it was me. I want to. I want to get this. I want to get this conversation back on track slightly, away from the daddy dong nipple piercings. Yeah, just just a little bit. You know, um, we can wallow in that for a minute. But <laughs> I really wanted to get back to the point you were kind of making earlier about like um, the value of programs like this food program in New York. And what I wanted to ask specifically is if you could kind of get into. You kind of talked a little bit about the structural importance of a program like this, but uh, I would like to think about the importance of this for the average person. Can we talk about what food security looks like in terms of changing people's entire fucking lives? Yes, of course. Uh, Not only is there 
it does it remove some of the mental burden of you know the second shift work the social reproduction work like feeding yourself and your family that's a huge cognitive load on people it's a huge source of stress it's a huge source of worry but also it's just the idea that like this is something that should just come with being a citizen like you are entitled to it so it can also just like increase our political imaginations over the last 40 years have been so like bonsai treed and whittled away that we just think nothing is actually possible and now as brandon likes to say the impossible is now possible and you can start to change people's ideas about what they should expect and they should expect something slightly better than nothing. That's something I see a huge generational gap with as well. Like younger people are definitely way more convinced that these things not only can be done or should be done but are like ethically required of us. And it's like a fundamentally different approach not just to government but how we relate to each other I think. Right. All sorts of theories about why that is. But there's also like just the practical matter is I think something like a rapidly expanded food program or a rapidly expanded produce program, you know, maybe not even cooked food, because I, you know, I do want to move away from these shelf stable things because they do tend to be very sodium heavy. And, you know, my dream for this is something like, again, they're doing in Barcelona where they're integrating local farming into this food assistance program is that supermarkets don't make money. I don't think they're coming back from this. And most restaurants aren't either. One of the weird side effects of my like ongoing five-year radicalization is I came to this sort of firm belief that the United States food service industry shouldn't exist. I mean, I can definitely say it's a deeply toxic industry where people are being horrifically taken advantage of and routinely abused, you know, verbally and sometimes even physically. But what do you define as food service? I mean, pretty much all levels of food service, because at every level, from the servers at the re restaurant to the people who grow and pick the food, there is another layer of exploitation. And it's sexual harassment. It's creating a second class of citizens who can't demand their rights because they're undocumented. It's wage theft is huge in food service. And I was Magic. just thinking like... This may represent an opportunity. I know we've all just become accelerationists now because that's what the universe is doing to us. But it's like we have an opportunity now to rethink how we think of food service and food production and food justice. And one of those things could be, okay, restaurants now have to pay a living wage. And you know what? You can't get a license to operate a restaurant in the city unless it's a co-op and it's worker-owned. The end. God, that is like my fantasy for not just restaurants, but just all businesses, all of them. We have hard data on worker-run restaurants saying that they have less turnover. They're usually more profitable in the long term. And, you know, since the workers run it, they can set their own wages, set their own hours. It's a lot less exploitative by several numbers of degrees. And like, again, going back to supermarkets as points of distribution, they're not really money makers. You have to own, it's a bit like fast food. You have to own like eight of them before they even start to make a profit. And that profit margin is so small. I feel like this is a natural monopoly that like a city could take over or largely take over and just say like, okay, you, know, you can run them however you want, but you have to have XYZ union that is run by its members that isn't a top-down union. And you can add some cooperatives and some agreements with the local farming cooperatives. And it just becomes a um, the paper alternate methods of ownership goes into this, these overlapping layers of communal organization that create a structure that creates a more robust, healthy system so you don't have something where, oops, no beans, because there's only one distributor for beans that supplies the eastern seaboard and they get swamped with an accident or half their employees turn up sick. 
I've been thinking about that a lot too. I've been seeing a lot of articles coming out about, you know, and this sort of goes back to supply chain issues that we're expecting. I've been seeing a lot of things talking about how like the workers right now are too sick to even harvest the vegetables, you know? So we're in this like really horrible position where like we have food that we are going to continue to need that people need now that's just rotting in the fields. Um, And that started somewhat, you know, with the more like we're going to crack down on immigration aspect of uh, Trump's presidency. But it's really been exacerbated now that, you know, the people who we need physically on the ground doing this work are not able to do it. And I just want to say, since farming justice is one of my particular things that I'm always hung up on, like there are so many solutions to this that would exist. Uh, would we, like John's been saying over and over again, move towards small and medium farms and away from big farms that are so far from you that like you don't even have access? I mean, if all the farms that had these problems were communal farms, there would be people to pick the produce one way or another. You just wouldn't have this situation. And uh, yeah, it's very it's very frustrating to think about food just rotting like that. That is horrifying to think about when we know that 3,000 people in general are dying of hunger every day. And if you're like worried about coronavirus, and you should be, well, you should also probably be worried about that too. That's a lot of people. Like that's not this is this is a crisis that is ongoing. And just because a lot of people are lucky enough to be removed from it doesn't mean that you should be ignorant of it. Right. It's like a 9-11 happening every single day just from hunger. I love that we measure uh, atrocities in 9-11s now as a society. It was a good move. Uh, Brandon started this trend of qualifying things in terms of how many 9-11s they are. Right. Uh, And I kept it because it's brilliant and a good idea. Yeah. It, it great idea always credit to myself credit to brandon always always uh can we maybe i mean i live in a, a pretty rough economic neighborhood and we do have community grow ops and co-ops and uh we have vegetables that are local vegetables that are sold nearby they do not get a lot of patronage because the margins are very thin for that stuff and even with government subsidies it's pretty expensive like it costs more money than going to the place down the street that maybe is a more traditional grocery store. And I also think that in economically distressed neighborhoods, buying local is a little bit of a turnoff because the things that are local remind them of poverty. Uh, Supermarkets are well lit. They have full-time staff. The food there is superficially better looking. It's usually going to be larger, but it might not taste as flavorful. But, you know, supermarkets are popular. So from a perspective of marketing it to actual people, also, I mean, as a side note, in Detroit, they are working on a co-op there now. And like, they're kind of low on getting staff to volunteer to be at these co-ops. So how do you convince people that live in neighborhoods that you feel would benefit from these co-ops that co-ops are good for them? Well, they should look good for one thing. Well, if these if these places don't have the corporate money or they don't have the profits from this exploitation, and we've already decided that that's like something that we should be working on getting rid of. I mean, most of the the farmer's markets that I can think of and grow ups that I can think of are just open air. And it's the location and it's the actual structures for the the actual vegetable. And there's not like tile floors or anything like that. Or the little sprinklers that go off like every four hours to like water the vegetables so they look fresher than they are. Well, I think your question, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but to rephrase what I think your question is, it seems like what you're really asking is like, how can we, as members of our community, persuade other members of our community to invest in a project like this? 
you know, what, what do we do to mobilize people towards this goal? I think that's 70% of my question. And I think 30% of my question is how do we align people with those values, which is maybe a harder part of the question. This is where I turn into a command economist and just say, this is infrastructure spending that you could do if you had a viable public bank in a large city. I mean, yeah, that's valid. Having a public bank would be huge and important. Um, And I think that kind of speaks to an overarching stumbling block that we have every time we talk about trying to implement individual like social programs like this is every single one of them pulls in something else that needs exactly to exactly it's it's, it's a whole network of dysfunction that we have to attack in some ways almost at once do you think john that in the short term there is utility to folks in their neighborhoods independently you know completely disregarding the government forming their own co-ops and maybe starting to try and do their own food production or do you think that's maybe um kind of excessive to where we are right now I think of for the time being and for the timeline as of right now, local individual garden production, unless it's maintained over a series of gardens into a much larger collective or cooperative, will only ever at best supplement your groceries. It's not replacing a couple trips to the supermarket. It's providing vegetables where there wasn't any, or it's kicking a grocery store trip down the line a little bit. There is something to be said for doing it as a carbon initiative and as a way of making previously unproductive land productive again. And I think in the immediate time sense, that is good because it helps knit together previously alienated communities and helps create this social basis for what we're trying to do. But if we want to ramp this up to a level in which I think becomes society changing, you need the you need the force of some kind of state or some kind of municipality to get behind it. And then you're talking about politically engaging all those people you've now stitched together through something like community food production. Uh, I know a lot of places are doing community uh, dinner nights with the food they grow in their grow ops as a way of doing that, uh, sometimes at churches, sometimes at municipal halls, uh, sometimes just at, I think, the local farmers union. And it's like, we don't have to grow enough food to feed, make sure everyone can have their own individual meal, but we can use the economies of scale of food production to make sure we have one big meal, say, every Saturday. When unfortunately, our current viral situation makes that not very possible, but that is something you know, at the mutual aid level, at the individual level, things can be accomplished. And through there, building up the networks from the bottom back up. And, you know, at the top, you have the city-run grocery store that uses brick and glass from local brick places and uh, glass refiners that hires people from the neighborhood and that uses relatively local produce. And it all looks really nice because it's being backed and funded for by the city's public bank. And it's not you know, required to make this gigantic profit, it can make enough to turn itself over. So it would kind of be um, similar to, there was a story floating around a while back about uh, one town where their only supermarket was going to close. So the entire town bought the market. Yeah, and that's the sort of level we're at. And again, stuff like that proves that it is possible. One of the things they mentioned in that article is that they can only do that if they kick out dollar stores, because the dollar store can always undercut them. Now, that is interesting. And actually, it uh, it sort of brings up a tangent, but it's very important as well. So many people are using dollar stores as their primary grocer. It's not no tangent. And first of all, most of the people that own dollar stores are very hardcore Trump supporters. So when the shit goes downhill in the economy, Dollar General slides right in, and especially in places where there's not a supermarket. And those are the places undercutting Walmart. Like, that's how ruthless. Imagine being a more evil corporation than Walmart. Well, 
before we even start talking about like why that is and how that should be opposed, just to like talk to people about the dollar store like business model, they do have like full price stuff from brands that people are aware of. And those things are generally not cheaper. But what they do is they fill those stores up with the cheapest stuff that they can get their hands on. And in those situations, they get custom orders for things that are really small size that they can say is a dollar. If you've ever seen like a dollar store steak, it's like this really, like it will make you sad to look at it. Like it's like a strip of that you can, it's like meat that you can see through, like it's sliced that thin, but they just like fill this, the, the, the store with this kind of stuff that's really cheap and really low quality. And they can sell it for, in some stores, a dollar. And on other stores, they just say it's like a dollar store. They sell it for like three or four dollars. It's just very rare that these are like really good, trustworthy things that are being sold. But they're like good enough if you're starving. So those places kind of have a niche and it's an expanding niche because as John said earlier, grocery stores, I don't know if people know this, are extremely low margin because most of the food that goes through a grocery store, again, because of customers' aesthetic preferences, it goes bad really quickly or it doesn't quite go bad, but it's not aesthetic anymore. And once it's not aesthetic anymore, people are trained not to purchase it. So there's a massive turnover in our food system. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about dollar stores specifically and what y'all are doing about those and what we should be doing as citizens? Oh, I mean, um, whenever I read about dollar stores or the you know the, the particular socioeconomic niche they occupy, I'm reminded very heavily of um, the kind of Upton Sinclair stuff that went down in New York around the turn of the century, where you had right, um, like the jungle. Yeah, the jungle. And like you had really yeah. low quality, uh, sometimes very dangerous produce and uh, food products being sold. And because the people buying it were, you know, the underclass, the poor, there was no political incentive to really change it. It actually took a moralistic crusade. You may wonder why there's a place called the Dairy in Central and Prospect Park. That's because um, adulterated milk was killing a whole lot of infants in New York City, but it was only killing the poor. So no one really cared until it took like progressive quasi-socialist reform movements to create these city-run dairies that would just hand out, if not cheap, or if not as cheap as the tainted milk, about the same price, maybe a little more. And they also like really overhauled the regulations for milk production. The reason they're not there anymore is because pasteurization was invented and we moved all the dairy farms to the Midwest. So, um, what, I almost don't want to ask this, when they adulterated the milk, how did they adulterate it? Um, the one that always sticked out with me was white ink. Oh, Jesus Christ. But that's when we talk about aesthetics and food production. And, uh, that's, I mean, it's not as bad now. Oh, (laughs) give it a little while. Right. If you talk about meat production, I mean, we can find some stories that are almost that bad. That is kind of, I think aesthetics have underpinned our relationships with food for a very long time. Victorian um, fruit sellers would hire um, women to carve small wooden pips to put on the fruit to make it look fresh. Uh, It's like very little has changed. And I feel like that relationship with the way that our oranges look and the way that our apples and bananas and produce in general looks creates a massive amount of food waste. And I don't, I don't really have a good, a good, way to shake that 
in our value system aside from i don't know we're running psas or something like it looks kind of bad you can still eat it it's fine not a big deal well i mean like there's been a kind of like upper middle class liberal guilt assuaging with that with programs like you know ugly box get the food that's too ugly for the supermarket and i'm just it always rubs me the wrong way because the supermarket is not really where the food waste is occurring it's mostly occurring in terms of numbers because a lot of stuff that's really too ugly for the supermarket gets put into processed foods you know, those ugly apples get turned into applesauce or they go to restaurants where you never see the original produce. A lot of food waste is in restaurants and a lot of food waste is in industrial industrial food production. The lower down on the ch- production line you go, the less waste there is. One way New York City is trying to deal with that is that we have a really robust urban composting program. And the idea is to take like food waste from restaurants and food waste from households, turn it back into creating, you know, carbon capturing, enriching soil. And one of the reasons the program kind of got stuck at a certain point is because it was too efficient. And it was creating like an excess of dirt, basically, compostable material. We only have so many parks. And I just kept thinking, well, if we removed the need for this to be profitable, what if we just sold fresh dirt to anyone who wanted to start an organic farm within 100 miles of the city? Like, what if we just took these resources that we have and meaningfully reused them towards producing more resources? What if we did it, you know, um, for productive use rather than profit? I don't know, guys. Maybe just try it. Unbelievable. Can you talk a little about a bit about your vision for the restaurant industry? Because you talked about food service as a whole, and we put a lot of emphasis on supermarkets, obviously, because supermarkets are so in the top of our minds right now. Should we just abolish restaurants? Are they like cruise ships? And it's like, how much do you need restaurants? Not really. It depends on like what level of radical you get me at the turn of the day, time of the day. Um, but I think that <laughs> I think an ethical restaurant is possible. But I almost, my feeling is almost restaurants are possible. You're making an ethical restaurant is possible. But I think like that would mean a restaurant would have to provide a living wage to all employees and follow. You you, you can start with labor law and that would just cascade it down the line. But then, you know, you you get from where it has to source from, you get from how it has to dispose of its food waste, you get from, you know, how it has to treat it. And then you create public options separate from the restaurant industry because I want them to actually have to compete. You you believe that there should be like state-run restaurants? Let's not say state. Let's say city-run food halls like they're doing in Barcelona. Or maybe we could also run like, you know, a um, a diner is a form of automated food production. An automat is a form of automated food production. A bistro is a form of automated food production. These places all have very standardized menus and are very firmly like in the American tradition. So what I'm saying is seize the sweet greens, make them work or run, and then make the restaurateurs <laughs> actually have to work hard to get the business they want. Uh, what is What is it called? Artificial competition. Artificial market competition yeah right now the restaurants don't have to compete because i always hear about you know what low margins they have and how much competition there is they compete with each other and they compete certainly but they compete by doing the one thing they can control which is worker wage like that's the one thing restaurateurs really have that they can move up and down a bit right and that's why we have this catastrophic situation with tipping with yeah like abolishing tipping there, that would go a long way. And uh, if people, you know, want to know what we'll do with all that extra kitchen space, I just said, well, what if there was a produce market that looked like every other produce market and an automat that looked like every other automat and a diner that looked like every other diner? It just happens to be run by the city of New York and stabbed with union employees. The cafeteria for the National Museum of Art is one of the best cafeterias I've ever been in. And it's owned by the federal government. Well, gee, when you put it that way, John, this has been an incredible conversation. Believe it or not, an hour has already flown by. And 
we're going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid. I feel like we could probably do about seven more episodes on this topic, um, <laughs> and perhaps we will. But uh, this is where this one's going to end today. Is on oh, you want to? Yeah, okay. I know. I, I keep having more questions the more we talk about it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what if a vending machine but really big <laughs> but really really big <laughs> the history of automats is a very interesting history and it has wrinkles that would be a interesting conversation but there's just not enough time like we would be a whole nother hour and maybe we'll do that too yeah i think i for one would love to do that i would love to have you back john Thank you. No, I was just going to mention, like, there are many ways you could approach this. For example, a friend of mine has a business specifically geared toward young mothers, where if you have an Instapot or a pressure cooker, you sign up for this service, and she'll just send you or her company will send you two to three to five vegetarian meals a week that you just plop in the pressure cooker, and it's done. As a parent to a small child, this speaks to me on a molecular level. And I was just thinking, it's like, well, you can always get better bang for your buck for buying in bulk. So why don't we just offer vastly reduced Instapots to everyone and then say if they want to sign up for the city delivery program, they can do it. And in fact, the New York City new meals program, you used to have to go to the school to pick up the ready to eat meals. Now there, I mean, it's de Blasio. So he's like getting taxi drivers to do it when everyone's saying, why isn't this bike couriers? Because the man is a wear car. He turns into a car on the full moon. But like... <laughs> That could no, no. be a job. We could like take all this awful, terrible, exploitative like Instacart Postmate system and put it into the hands of the workers and use it to deliver meals to people for almost nothing. So it sounds to me, broadly speaking, like the solution here is going to be educate, agitate, organize. Anyhow, it always comes back to that. It seems like it always does. And I think that's a good place to uh, bring it back home to as we do in so many of our episodes. You know, the power is really truly in our hands they need us more than we need them and with or without the government we can still take care of each other you know we just have to actually start doing it and it can be pretty small steps and the old situationalist motto is like our ideas are already in everybody's heads i think this crisis is going to put that idea into a lot of people's heads real fast absolutely john this was such a pleasure and it was really wonderful to hear kind of some of your visions of how we could do better on such an important subject. And uh, before we go, I just want to give you a chance. John Levitt, tell the audience out there where they find you on the internet and what you're doing. Well, um, I'm increasingly obnoxiously on Twitter because I have nothing else to do all day. At Levitt Alone, L-E-A-V-I-T-T Alone. Uh, same thing, levitalone.com is my portfolio site for my illustration. If you're hiring an illustrator, I could really use the work, uh, but also links to all my writing. And I've got some scattered like video, like skit stuff or like me hosting a DSA talent show event that you can certainly find online. John, I'll definitely be following you on Twitter right after the show. And I encourage everyone to do the same. <laughs> that link will, of course, be on in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we have been not safe for wonks if you don't follow us on twitter we're at nsf wonks it's always a party over there you gotta come check it out and if you are not doing so bad right now during the corona crisis maybe you just got your trump bucks and you're trying to think of a few things that you could spend it on that's worthwhile maybe check out our patreon at patreon.com not safe and send us a couple of dollars it means all the world to us we are a completely independent show and every dollar that we get is the dollars that we have to spend on the show basically <laughs> yeah that's basically how it goes 
we are a much better economic choice than let's say like 15 copies of Animal Crossing. Yes. You're going to waste those things. Don't worry about it. Just one one copy of Animal Crossing and then five bucks to us. Come on. It's, you know, that's reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe like five bucks for each copy of Animal Crossing you do buy to us. Like whatever. <laughs> Follow your dreams. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. I'm Rachel Kahn. And once again, our guest was John Levitt. John, thank you once again. Welcome. Thank you. So very good. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.